0: What a joy to celebrate the work of God in our midst and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ made available to us in the waters of baptism. What a picture of what I think would give the Apostle Paul incredible joy. Uh, What I believe that he gave his own life for as we read in this wonderful letter of Philippians. He longed to see the advancement of the gospel. That's what he longed to see. He saw the beauty of the gospel of Christ and in seeing it, he gave his whole life to seeing it spread through all the places that the Lord would send him. And he rejoiced when he saw those who didn't know Christ come to know him and follow him. I think the question, one of the questions that raises for us in the midst of this section in the letter of Philippians is, is the heartbeat of your life to see the advancement of the gospel? Is it the heartbeat of your life to see the advancement of the gospel? That was Paul's heartbeat. And I believe that he would call us into that very recognition and into that deeper level of experience even today today As we approach his word together. I must admit to you as I was studying this word this week. I kind of come before you this day with a heart that is very full. Very full of this truth. There are some weeks as a preacher. That the preparation for sermons believe it or not is painful work. Believe it or not these sermons don't just appear out of thin air actually requires effort. Some of you are surprised to hear that, I think. One of you joked recently to me, you must have had a nice week, you only worked a couple hours on Sunday morning. Uh Just joking, just joking, it was all in good humor. No, these don't come from nowhere. But there are weeks in which I stand before you as I've prepared a message and my heart is still very much in process wrapping around its truth. And one of my prayers is, Lord, as I preach this message today, I want to hear it. I want to hear this message. And I know there are, there are aspects of the truth that still need to register with me as I'm preaching. And phenomenologically, the Lord is very kind to often register a truth with me in the midst of preaching it. And I'm grateful for that. And by His grace, He'll do it again today. But there are certain weeks where in preparation for a sermon, you have fed so deeply on a sermon, your soul is so full already, that you've already heard it so deeply from the Lord that you're just like the ministry's already done. Like you kind of come totally rested into the presence of the Lord. And that's really how I feel today, coming into the presence of the Lord with you. It seems like I've heard this message in a spiritually deep and profound way. And I just hope you get to overhear what I've been hearing. Uh, over the course of the week together that's really what this moment seems like for me and I'm really grateful for that and I know that the things which the Lord's been teaching me this week from this passage I'm just beginning to understand I'm just beginning to grasp but I can tell that he's up to something and I'm eager to see what it is that he is going to do so with that as a way of just simply introducing uh, where we are in the midst of this, even where my own heart is as I come to you uh, from this passage, I want to look at these few verses from Philippians chapter 1, and I want to I sit in these verses, uh, learning various truths from those verses, and then I want to spend some time at the end of the message really applying uh, this text, really thinking about, okay, here's the portrait of what Paul has given to us here in the text. What does it mean? And then what does it mean for us? And that'll be sort of the pattern that we'll follow over the course of the message together today. Let's look together at Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 12 and we're going to read to verse 18. This is God's word. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I rejoice. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we take a few minutes right now, in your presence before your word, we would simply cast all of ourselves upon uh, the will of your Holy Spirit who would come now and illumine this word and bring it home to our hearts and our lives. Portion out its grace in direct need for the individual souls in this room. Let your wisdom lead all that takes place in our time together and give us strength of heart to both apprehend your grace and to follow accordingly. Bless us now in this way we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's fair to say that when the church at Philippi begin to read uh, these words, the main body, beginning the main body of the letter of Philippians here in verse 12, that it would have given to them great assurance, great encouragement. If calculations are right, the Apostle Paul has been away from the church at Philippi, which he planted. They had heard the voice of the gospel first through him. He had been away from them for four plus years by this particular juncture as they're receiving the letter of Philippians. And yet this church throughout all of that time has kept their ear to the ground about the news of the Apostle Paul. Where is he? What is he up to? What is going on with him? We know that because they were fully aware of the fact that Paul was in prison in Rome. And you'll remember that out of their love for the Apostle Paul, they took a love offering up and they sent it by way of one of their servants, Epaphroditus, to bring that love offering to Paul and to minister to him. Epaphroditus, as he was there serving Paul, you might also remember, uh, came down with a deadly illness. Almost died there uh, with Paul as he was in prison. But by God's grace, rehabilitated, is now healed. He has come all the way back to Philippi and he's come back with a first-hand testimony from the Apostle Paul. That's really what the letter of Philippians is. Now, as they read this letter, if I can get in the shoes of the church at Philippi for just a bit, they read through the beautiful introduction and thanksgiving and prayer that the Apostle Paul offers. But surely some of them were, as it were, skimming the letter just a bit to say, How is Paul? What's going on with him? This is one they followed for many, many years. They want to know, How's he doing? What's his circumstance? Epaphroditus may have shared some things with regards to giving giving oral testimony about how the Apostle Paul's doing, but they want to know from Paul's own hand how is it that he's doing. And what's interesting is, as he comes in telling them about his own condition, where he's at, what's going on, he has very little to say about himself, almost nothing. In fact, he only gives the slightest reference there in verse 12 regarding what's going on with him. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There you have it. What has happened to me. He, he alludes later to the imprisonment. He's going to talk later about, about chains. But he doesn't go through the long laundry list of sufferings and difficulties and tribulations and trials that he's experienced. If you look at the end of the book of Acts, you actually will see that list. It's too many to name, but let me just tell you a few things that happened to the Apostle Paul in the four years that he's been away from Philippi. He's been falsely accused, nearly hanged by a mob. He has ended up in prison two different times, escaped flogging just nearly by appealing to his Roman citizenship. He's been insulted, he's been beat. He's been rejected for legal recourse. He's been charged with made-up charges and misrepresented. He's now back in prison in Rome, and he's chained to a guard, and we're not sure whether he's going to see the light of day. That's just a sampling of what the Apostle Paul has experienced in the four years since he's been in Philippi. And here's what Paul says. I want to tell you what's happened to me and how God has used it to advance the gospel. How instructive is that? That the focus of the Apostle Paul has zero to do with himself. As he's writing to a church that he knows deeply cares about him. Deeply wants to know how his health is, how he's doing, what's going on with you. They probably would have given him a pass if he had decided to rant for several pages about the people in Rome. And talked about all the injustice, all the mistreatment. Can you believe these people? Woe is me, pity party time. We would have given him an excuse. If he would have decided to introduce his letter with a long elaboration of his sufferings and heartaches. And yet the Apostle Paul doesn't indulge us nor indulge the Philippians at all in such discussion. Where's his focus? Entirely on the advance of the gospel. Entirely on the advance of the gospel. Paul is saying the real miracle here is not that I'm alive. The real miracle is that the gospel is alive. It's alive and it's advancing. And the Lord is using all of the things that the world has tried to use to stamp out the gospel. God has actually used those things to advance the gospel. We see that in multiple ways in this passage. In fact, I just want to highlight the three big ones for you as he identifies that here in verses 12 to 18. There are three ways that we see the power of the gospel advancing. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to see this, Philippi. And I want, to see, I want you to see this church at Cornerstone in Franklin, Tennessee. I want you to see these things. I want you to see that through my imprisonment, the power of God is at work, number one, In opening up a new field of harvest for the gospel. My imprisonment has been nothing but a new field of harvest for the gospel. That's what this is. Now what do I mean by that? Well... Far from this imprisonment actually hindering the gospel, which is what you would expect it to to happen. In fact, don't we we think that when we hear of someone in a foreign country, in a a country that's opposed to the gospel where persecution is alive and well, maybe even a country like China. As many of you know, I have friends in China who are right now experiencing that that kind of oppression. When we hear of them under oppression or we hear of them being in prison, we think to ourselves, oh no, there's not going to be a gospel witness in China or there's not going to be a gospel witness in Rome because someone has been imprisoned. It would have been likely that same response for the church at Philippi. And Paul wants wants the Philippians to know, Hey, listen, I want you to be just shocked, almost gobsmacked, if you will, at what God is doing here. He is actually, through my imprisonment, giving a whole field of harvest for the gospel that I'd never be able to tap into otherwise. It would have never been made available to me. Because every day I have one of the imperial guards next to me. Now the Imperial Guards, and maybe your translations will say the Praetorian guards. same good translation, are the 9,000 choicest soldiers in the Roman Empire. They worked directly under the emperor uh, himself. They were, if if we could put it this way, the secret service of the Roman Empire. They were in the White House. They knew the center of power. They were in and out of the halls of power all of the time. He has every day in shifts Imperial soldiers that are changed to him who come in one after another and Paul is saying get this the best of the soldiers that come from the inner recesses of the center of power in Rome are on rotation a captive audience for the gospel (laughs) they are on rotation a captive audience for the gospel as soon as, the, as soon as the 2 p.m. watch is up and the 3 p.m. shift comes in and they stand next to me, I begin feeding them the gospel. And and what's happened is the whole, notice the language of the text, the whole of the imperial guard has come to know that I am imprisoned for Christ. The message of the gospel is getting into places that I would never have imagined it to go. In fact, I would have never been able to get to the imperial guards had it not been for my imprisonment. What a wonderful missionary charge that God has put me on by placing me within the confines of imprisonment. That's Paul's language. It's actually the the very grammar of the way in which he structures the argument. If you'll you'll look there in verse 14, Most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then on, on down, he speaks in verse 16, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Wait, Paul, I thought it was the emperor and his cronies' idea to put you in prison. Nope, God put me here. Why did he put me here? To defend the gospel. What a fascinating thing that the apostle Paul is seeing. And notice how he's educating the church at Philippi. A whole new harvest is being born by virtue of the fact That God has, through his wisdom and through his providence, commissioned me and set me apart to be in prison so that the whole of the imperial guard can learn of my imprisonment for Christ. Now, interestingly, if you'll notice the way that it reads in the text, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. And you think, well, who's that? Because he doesn't give us names and to all of the rest that are here, But I'd like to suggest to you that all of the rest is actually Caesar's household itself. Why can I suggest that? Because at the end of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, in the final greetings of this letter, the apostle Paul, as he's writing from Rome to the church at Philippi, he says to them, listen, I send you greetings from the brothers and sisters here in Philippi, and I send you special greetings from Caesar's household. And you think to yourself, isn't Caesar's household responsible for your imprisonment? Yeah. Yeah. Why are you sending greetings from Caesar's household? You know that the gospel has gotten to the very center of the Roman Empire. And you know what we're going to see in the unfolding of history is over the next several hundred years, this Roman Empire, this pagan, uh, God-rejecting nation becomes a nation that is marked as a Christian nation. Where the pervasive nature of Roman, the Roman Empire, one of the greatest experiences and pictures of gospel-conquering power that we see in history. It started right here. And the Apostle Paul is teaching us that God has used what looked like a setback... As an advancement for the gospel. God has used what looked like an obstacle as an opportunity for the gospel. God has used what looked like a barrier to establish a new beachhead for the gospel. Now, not only did the Apostle Paul say that I see a new field of harvest before me with the Imperial Guard and even Caesar's household burgeoning, but he says this, God is using my imprisonment secondly as a means to strengthen The church's witness. As a means to strengthen the church's witness. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Are much bolder to speak the word without fear. Now on the surface you might be asking yourself. How exactly does that work? They hear of someone who has been preaching the gospel and of which the local officials have now persecuted and put in prison and the rest of the church says, I think we should speak boldly the word of God. Why would the response not be, it's time to go radio silent here. It's it's time to retreat. It's time to back up and think more strategically about how we go about our commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul says is actually happening with the church's witness in Rome as they hear of his imprisonment and maybe even in other places where the apostle Paul's imprisonment is now being made known. What's actually happening is these brothers are hearing of this and they're stepping forward in boldness to speak the word without fear. It's actually having a renewing effect Upon their commitment to the gospel and their willingness to fill the void with Paul's absence. That the gospel would continue to go forth to all the nations, to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Now we know that the Roman Empire had hoped by throwing Paul in prison. They'd snuff out the main evangelist. And the Apostle Paul is saying the opposite is happening. Not only have they not snuffed out the power of the gospel... They have actually been used as handmaidens of God to bring the gospel further towards the center of the Roman Empire. And they have been used by handmaidens of God... To bolster the strength of the church so that those who were once whispering are now speaking loudly. Those who weren't talking are now beginning to converse about the gospel. There is a boldness that's rising up within the church's witness as they see that I am imprisoned by Christ. That Christ has me here on a mission. They're emboldened to share the gospel. It's the experience that you and I have whenever we have read a really good missionary biography. It might be the story of William Carey. It might be the story of Amy Carmichael or Jim Elliott or or some great saint of old who has given their lives and have been spent for Christ. And we read their story and we see their faith and we see their commitment. And we walk away after having read that story and we say to ourselves, What's holding me back from opening up my lips? What's holding me back from laying my life on the, la- on the line for what Christ would call me to do? And we find ourselves challenged and inspired by their example. The Apostle Paul is saying that very thing is happening as the story of my imprisonment begins to spread among the church. That's the second thing that Paul says. The gospel is not merely advancing among unbelievers. Guess what is happening? What is happening? It's emboldening the church. It's emboldening the church. But thirdly, he says this Through my imprisonment, God is actually showing his triumph over the motivations and plans of men. Through my imprisonment, God is actually showing his triumph. Over the motivations and the plans of men. Now, there are multi applications to that point, even within this text, but I want to use the one that Paul uses here in the text. Notice what he says is happening in verse 15. There's a group of men who have been emboldened by the gospel, who are now opening up their lips to declare the truth. And in verse 15, he tells us, among this group, there are two different types. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul says there's two motivations that are happening in the hearts and the lives of these that are sharing the gospel. And he's actually peeling the veil back on a really ugly story. And let me let you in on this ugly story. Pastors and preachers are nasty sinners. That's the story. I actually have that on very good authority. I happen to be one. I can vouch for the fact this is a struggle. This is a real life on life challenge. Just go to a pastor's conference. And listen to us talk, and you'll begin to find out pretty clearly the kind of things the Apostle Paul is drawing up here is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. These are a very common struggle among minister types. And in the context of Philippians chapter 1, he's saying, I recognize that there are some that licked their chops when they saw me go in imprisonment. They thought, the big church is open, The pulpit is mine to fulfill. This is a window of opportunity for me to capitalize on what now is an absence and a vacancy. When Paul blew into town, he had a resume a mile long in ministry successes. People came flocking to him. They hung on every word. And these guys hated him for it. And then as soon as he ends up in prison, they say to themselves, this is my opportunity, this is my chance. He says they actually were double motivated in their ill intent. They wanted to, as it were, push me down, cause me affliction and pain. And they also wanted to promote themselves, which is just the nature of envy, isn't it? It's the very nature of jealousy, to push down and to, and to lift up. He says there's a whole group of people who are out there preaching the gospel for that very motivation. And here's where the Apostle Paul says, I want you to rejoice church at Philippi. I want you to rejoice uh, church at Cornerstone in Franklin, Tennessee. You know what's amazing about our God? Is that his gospel is not imprisoned in Roman cells. And his gospel is not imprisoned by men's motivations. It's not imprisoned by men's motivations. Notice the Apostle Paul says here, they weren't preaching a false gospel. He saves really choice words for people who are preaching a false gospel. Just read Galatians. They're preaching a pure gospel from an impure heart. And the Apostle Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. So much for afflicting Paul. So much for afflicting Paul in his imprisonment. So much for stirring up Paul's jealousy and anger and frustration. Because he says, here's what's interesting... The Roman officials are now the handmaiden of God to accomplish the advancement of the gospel. The Roman officials in my imprisonment has now encouraged the church to flourish. And those who weren't speaking boldly are now speaking boldly. And those within the church that are full of sin and are motivated sinfully to preach the gospel, God's not held captive by that at all. At every level, Paul is saying, be encouraged, church. The outside world at its greatest power can't stop the advance of the gospel. And the church itself, which often gets in the way of the gospel, can't stop the gospel either. Nothing will stop the power and the advance of the gospel. I want you to know, Church at Philippi, what's amazing is not that I'm alive. What's amazing is that every attempt to stamp out the gospel has actually produced more power and advancement for the gospel. That's a stunning reality for the Apostle Paul. He's bowled over by it. I can't tell you about my mistreatment and justice. I don't waste your time on that foolishness. Let me tell you some good news. That the the world is turning into fools because the wisdom of God is stronger than the wisdom of men. In fact, his foolishness is wiser than men. That's the Apostle Paul's language here. He says, I want you to know there's nothing going to stop the advance of the gospel, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. He's encouraging the church at Philippi to say, listen, from without, from within, the gospel has all kinds of obstacles, but our God is using them all as his handmaidens to accomplish his mission. Now I want to pause right there. I really don't want to say anything else so much about the exposition of this text. I want to ask the question... What would it be like to live as free as the Apostle Paul in the mission of the gospel? What would that look like? How could we become people like that? To where the world could throw its worst at us and we would laugh with joy at the advancement of the gospel. What what would need to shift? What, what kind of maturity and growth would need to take place within us for the character that we see in the Apostle Paul to become increasingly true of you and me? That's really the question I want to ask. And I want to, I want to do it textually by identifying three applications for us. I want to do it textually by identifying three applications for us. And the first is an application of belief. It's a, it's a, it's a truth matter that you and I must believe... And must come to terms with if we're going to experience the kind of freedom and joy in the gospel that we see the Apostle Paul displaying here in this text. And the truth number one is this. We've got to believe in the absolute sovereign providence of Almighty God. You, it's got to be a settled issue in your heart. The absolute sovereign providence of Almighty God that nothing can stay His hand. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your strategy is. I don't care how dismal it looks. Nothing can stay his hand. He is absolutely sovereign over all things that take place in the world. That's a settled conviction that the Apostle Paul is working from as he writes Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 12-18. He knows that he's there in prison because God is in control of the world. He knows that the boldness that's happening among the church is happening because God's in control of the world. He knows that the motivations of men, mixed and wicked as they often are, are not an ultimate threat to the gospel. Why? Because God is in control of the world. That's what he knows. He's absolutely convinced of it. It's a settled reality in the Apostle Paul. It's got to be a settled reality in the heart and the life of all of us who believe in Christ that God is in control. He is sovereignly working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's point number one. The absolute sovereignty and the providence of God over all things. Now listen, these build. Point two is not just providence. Point two is perspective. Once you embrace the absolute sovereignty of the providence of God over all things, it gives you eyes to see. It gives you eyes to see. Paul has a perspective. He now, by virtue of that truth and knowledge, he's interpreting every event in his life according to that very reality. That's why he can say, I have been put here. For the defense of the gospel. You can imagine that settled reality in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he lands in prison in Rome. And he's like, yeah, okay, I remember this. I've been here before. wonder what God's going to do this time. You can catch the settled reality in the Apostle Paul is that when negative things, difficult things, challenges, struggles, trials, tribulations, though painful though often undoing to our own hearts and lives, humanly speaking. They are, for the Apostle Paul, an opportunity to reinterpret, to newly interpret what God is up to in this moment. The question he's beginning to ask is, how is the Lord going to be at work, and how is he at work in the situation in which he has placed me? His eyes are peeled for that. His perspective has really begun to change. Now, here's where... It changes for us. I just want you to get you know, in your own life for a second and think to yourself that job loss is under the sovereign providential hand of Almighty God. He has something in store in that job loss that is meant for your blessing and your good and it's meant as a ministry and a blessing to those who are around you. That loss... That grief, that sickness, that that illness, that particularly hard spot in your life that you, you can't reconcile, that you'd wish just would go away, that he'd just fix it and it just continues to linger. Those are given to you by a sovereign God who actually desires and wills To use those as a means by which to make himself and his calling to the world known. Let me ask you the question about in this way. Let's go back to the man who's just lost his job. Because it was just a couple of weeks ago. I'm having a conversation with someone who's lost their job and they're calling me. um, A Christian, actually not in this congregation. A Christian though in our area asking if I know about jobs. I know anything that's available. We're talking on the phone. He's worried. He's expressing concern appropriately. So bills are going to be coming coming due. He's very, very worried about what's going to happen. Give him some leads. We talk. we, We pray. But I leave him with a question. I say, listen, this did not take God unawares. What has happened to you has been planned and orchestrated by the Lord. He has for you something that he wants to both teach you and a means by which he wants to change you and use you as a portal in ministry. One of the ways that you can help me and one of the ways that you can help the church in a way that I can't right now is that you can show me what dependence on God looks like for daily bread in a way that I can't presently by the calling that He's placed in your life through this suffering. The question I want to encourage you to ask is, how is this to be used for the blessing in the service of others? How is this to be used for the blessing in the service of others? He has given this to me for a reason, for a purpose. How can His will be accomplished, what would it look like for you to increasingly know that you are utterly dependent on the provision of Christ and there is nothing you can do to change your circumstances? What could God teach you from a heart like that? What could God teach us through you with a heart that's like that? Gone through a painful divorce. Gone through a battle with addiction gone through sufferings that I didn't choose. I didn't choose to lose my job. Paul didn't choose to be in prison. How might God use it as a means by which to show forth his mission? I'm going to just appeal to your experience for a second. When you see someone, a believer in Christ, who has gone through suffering and who then takes that suffering... And takes that challenge and begins to employ that suffering and that challenge for the purposes of ministry. And begins to show you all the ways that the Lord has actually used that suffering and pain for his glory. Both in their life and in the lives of others. I'm going to assure you of one thing if you're in Christ. You're encouraged by that. It blows you away, doesn't it? When you hear Joni Erickson Tata talk about suffering and you just go... Father in heaven, teach me these truths. When I was talking to a young mom who had lost a child a handful of years ago, and we're sitting and we're weeping over the loss of that child, and then she says to me, I know that God has given this to me in some way, shape, or form in order to serve those who are suffering in grief, to make His truth and promises known. Oh, Lord, give us that faith. Lord, give us that faith. You see, she's asking that question by virtue. She's resting in the providence of sovereign God who everything that has happened has happened for a reason. It's changed her entire perspective. The way she lives is completely different. That's what the Apostle Paul is demonstrating for us in this passage. Is what he's calling us to in the midst of this passage. And that leads us with our final application today. Providence, perspective, and yes, I'm a preacher. Priority. What is the final piece of this whole puzzle? There's only one thing the Apostle Paul lives for. His life is so gloriously uncomplicated. Uncomplicated. There's only one thing he lives for. The advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all he lives for. If he's in prison, he's for the advancement of the gospel of Christ. If he's preaching to thousands, for the advancement of the gospel of Christ. He's eating with Gentiles, it's for the advancement of the, of the cause of Christ. Everything is for the advance of the cause of Christ. It's very simple. It's very difficult, but it's not because it's complicated. It's very straightforward. Oftentimes, the impact that we fail to make... In our own lives with regard to our bearing of witness of Christ. Because our lives are very complicated. We have about 15 or 20 things we're trying to accomplish at once. And very little has to do with the advancement of the gospel. And all of a sudden we're very anxious. We're very worried. We're very concerned. We're very stressed out. We're very overwhelmed. And the Apostle Paul has every reason to be overwhelmed. And the man is free. Because he's seeing the mission that he's committed to be completed over and over and over again. He's seeing it advanced. Let me tell you the wisdom of the Apostle Paul here because it's the wisdom for you and I. If you yoke yourself to a mission that you cannot be sure is going to be accomplished, it will bring you great anxiety. Paul yoked himself to a mission That he knew God was going to accomplish. It didn't matter what the day was. What the temperature was. How things looked. He knew the end of the story. Was that the gospel goes to every kindred, tribe, tongue and nation. And Jesus wins and sits on the throne. He lived with that reality in view. And he yoked himself to that call. And surprise, surprise. He lived with incredible freedom and confidence. Instead of getting splintered into a million other objectives and ends, the Apostle Paul, zero. You see how he is almost, he's just saturated with the gospel. He's like, let me tell you about these Romans. God's advancing the gospel. Let me tell you about the church, what's going on in the church. Yeah, there's all kinds of sin. Here's what's fascinating. God's using it to advance the gospel. Everywhere you look, the Apostle Paul is saying, watch this. I'm going to tell you a trick. It's going to be about advancing the gospel. Because that's what the whole world is about. The God who rules this world, that's his mission. And the God who rules this world will not leave that mission incomplete. It's only a matter of time before we see it fulfilled. When you decide to align yourself with the mission of God that will be accomplished, you will begin to find the freedom and the joy of God showing up in your own heart. You'll begin to find that the things of this world grow strangely dim. As the brightness of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ becomes ever more beautiful and believable to you. Now, not surprisingly, all the Apostle Paul is showing us, you you expect this from me, right? All the Apostle Paul is showing us is the life of Christ. When Jesus was here on the earth, what did he do? It was his meat. And his drink to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. He lived under the sovereign providence and umbrella of his Father leading him every step of the way. As he looked out in terms of his perspective, he saw the crowds. He didn't entrust himself to the crowds. North American preachers entrust themselves to the crowds. Jesus does not entrust himself to the crowds. He didn't live by eyes. He he lived by the reality of the truth. He saw with the lens of of faith and confidence in the Lord. He never never did what his disciples wanted him to do. You know what? You've got the resources. You've got the charisma. You've got the power. We're going to take this thing back from the Romans. You're going to become the best religious leader we've ever experienced in life. Get behind me, Satan. Steely eyed in his mission. He was here to redeem his people from their sins. His perspective was clear. He knew his calling because he had one priority. To come and redeem you and me. And in redeeming you and me, that our lives would look more and more like his. You see, the Apostle Paul is actually showing us through his demonstration, his character, and his practice, he's showing us who Jesus is. He's showing us who Jesus is. Friends, I don't know how the Lord needs to apply these truths fully to your heart and life. We'll get a chance over the next few weeks to explore these truths even further in this letter of Philippians. But I want to ask you the question. Of those realities of providence and perspective and priority, if you begin to bring those together in the course of your life, asking the question, where is your real confidence today? is it in something of the world if it is do you feel anxious there's a reason how are you looking at the world is everything that happens to you are you a victim of circumstance somebody done something wrong to you are you resentful and bitter are you just trying to get over stuff is it a calling is it a stewarding is it a mission are you asking the question, what is God up to? And what does He want me to do with this? And thirdly, what are you living for? No, oh, really. Not the Sunday school answer. What are you living for? What is your time? What does your pocketbook tell you? Where, where are you focused? Where are you committed? Is your life really complicated? Is it, is it littered with pursuits of comfort and accolade and getting to certain benchmarks and... All the things that you're going to leave behind? Is it committed to the advancement of the gospel? Tending and nurturing the things most eternal? To see them burgeon in your own life and in the lives of those in whom the Lord has given you influence? Continue to ask those questions. Continue to ask those questions. As we ask those questions together as a community... God will be very pleased to answer them in a whole variety of ways. Because when you start asking questions like that, and you start answering them according to God's will, guess what? He is very pleased to show you His way. He is very pleased to show you His way. As we continue to focus on those priorities in the days to come, come back eager to hear, Lord, what do you you want from me? I've got a few years left. I'm just starting my life. I'm just thinking about... What do you want from me, Lord? It's all on the table. What would my life, living sacrifice, acceptable in your eyes for the advancement of the gospel look like? How about we decide as a congregation to live for something that really matters? The one thing that really matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, let's be those people. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would answer that. That you would would show us what that means individually for us and corporately for us as a body. That increasingly so, we could answer that question with a sense of integrity and a sense of longing. That more and more, there's less of us and more of you. And more of you in us. Hear us, Lord Jesus, and lead us, we ask it. In your holy name, amen.